The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food health, and agriculture. And today my guest is a fascinating gentleman by the name of Frank Baker. He calls himself a media literacy educator, and we're going to talk about media literacy and why it's important. He also heads up the Media Literacy Clearinghouse, and you can check that out online for all sorts of wonderful resources to help bring media literacy into your world. Um, Frank, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, Frank, in 2001, I went to my first media literacy conference, and people out there might think, well, what's a dietitian doing going to a media literacy conference? And I went because I realized that people got their food and nutrition and health information from the media. And after that initial meeting in 2001, I like to tell people that I found religion. I felt like teaching people how to interpret media messages was key to public health. Tell me how you found the field. Oh, a great question, and, and I totally agree with you. It's so critical for all of us to question the media messages that we're bombarded with every day. I'll tell you how I got to media literacy. I worked in television news for nine years, and the last stop was Orlando, Florida, where I left television news and joined the public school system. Orlando, Florida, at the time, I think, was the 16th largest school system in the country. So I'd come from television news, and now I was in education. My wife at the time was a teacher, and I began to see teachers really misusing video in the classroom. And uh, here we were in Orlando at a public school system, and who is in our backyard but two tremendous media companies, uh, actually three at the time, Disney, Universal, and Anheuser-Busch. And, you know, I didn't want our teachers to be slapped with uh, any kind of copyright infringement for uh, using video in the classroom, you know, inappropriately. And so I, I began to ask curriculum specialists. I worked at that school system in instructional television and distance learning, but I began asking the curriculum specialists, is anybody doing media literacy? And they said, no, not really. And I said, would, would you mind if I took it up upon myself to offer some professional development for teachers? And they said, we'd be happy for you to do it. And I can remember one of the very first workshops that I organized for elementary teachers was right before the Christmas holidays, and it was called TV Toy Commercials, How They Influence Kids. And I'll never forget, a teacher raised her hand, and she said, Mr. Baker, you mean I could be recording those commercials on Saturday morning television and using them in the classroom? And I said, yes. And she said, well, well how, how would I use them? And I said, well, let's go back and look at what we're supposed to teach young people. Aren't we supposed to be teaching them techniques of persuasion? And, and some folks call those propaganda techniques. And, and the answer is yes. And we could do that by using the same commercials that they are exposed to, and they're so influential and persuasive, especially around the holiday time of year. And then uh, a few years later, working with social studies educators and the Orlando Sentinel newspaper, we organized a workshop, again, for uh, teachers and school library media specialists, looking at the political campaign advertisement, that 30-second commercial that's so pervasive 
during our election season, whether it's a local election or a national election. So I, I think you can see how I, I got very much interested in, in what teachers were teaching and what they were not teaching, how they were using media in some ways inappropriately and how I could help them use it more appropriately. I also, uh, at that school district, managed a large lending library of videotapes and films, and so I was always on the lookout for resources that would help teachers teach to, to standards. And, of course, I hope your audience knows you know, that's what teachers have to to That's the guide, the architectural plan that they have to follow as far as what do I teach at third grade, what do I teach at ninth grade, so forth, right? so on. So that's really how I, I, I got to media literacy. And I started to, to read all of the educational material about media literacy and attended one of the very first media literacy conferences nationally, I think in 1995, and, and I remember uh, at a subsequent conference standing up at the end of the event and, and saying to this large gathering of folks, you know, if we want young people to be media literate, someone needs to look at what each of the state's teaching standards says about media literacy. And I literally got back to my home and got on the Internet and started this methodical state-by-state search of, of teaching standards, and the result was a study that was published in 1999, published by Education Week, uh, the periodical of the education business, if you will, and what we found was that media literacy, elements of media literacy, have been found in most states' standards for English, language arts, social studies, and health. Those were the three primary areas that we looked at, and that does not mean that media literacy doesn't fit into math or science or or technology or art. Uh, they do. But those were the three areas that we looked at at the time. And I think that those results were surprising to many people who, who didn't realize that media literacy is, is actually embedded in those standards, even though it may not be called media literacy. It might be called techniques of persuasion, or it might be, be called you know informational text, or it might be called you know, propaganda or bias, but it's there. Right. You know, one of the ways I like to define media literacy for people is simply critical thinking and teaching critical thinking skills as it applies to whatever media message we're talking about of the day. So it could be toy commercials at Christmas time. It could be political campaigns during that time of year. It could be serial commercials. It could be toilet bowl cleansers. It could be any kind of media messages that we receive. And because my area of focus tends to be on food, health, the environment, I look at some of these messages and I think, my gosh, uh, we have to help youth understand how they're being tricked or how they're being persuaded because our very democracy and the health of our planet is at stake. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, if you log on to my website, the Media Literacy Clearinghouse, under the logo, it says critical thinking about media messages. And as much as I talk to teachers and present to teachers, and that's my primary audience as a consultant, uh, I'm often in the classroom talking to the students of those teachers. But more importantly, I think uh, the health of the democracy is is at jeopardy if we don't reach the parents and the guardians of those same young people because we could we could have media literacy taught in american schools and and then those same young people go home and and what happens they jump on their cell phones or they jump on their computers or they sit in front of the 
television or the video game uh, for hours. And, and we now know, after years of some real good research, what the impact of too much media exposure is on the brain of young people and how that exposure affects everything. In fact, this week, I believe there was a study out about uh, multitasking. And so uh, we know that when young people are doing more than one thing at a time, let's say watching television, texting on a cell phone, doing homework, when they are multitasking, doing all of these things at one time, one study says where they retain information is not as easily recalled. And that has implications for, for learning. That's fascinating, Frank, because I remember when the Kaiser Family Foundation's report came out showing that we are using, or I should say youth are using, or spending more time with media, but they're also multitasking more, which really makes your comment all the more salient. Yeah, and I think these are facts studies, issues that we need to get to the parents. I don't know that the parents always get this information. So, you know, uh, their son or daughter comes home and, and they jump on the computer, which might be in their bedroom away from parenting eyes. And the same thing with the, uh, the television in the bedroom. And as, as one principal said, a school principal, you know, a, a computer or a television in a, in a child's bedroom is a prescription for disaster. Why? Because the parents don't know what their young people are viewing. And, and I'll repeat what teachers tell me, and I, I travel all over the country, and teachers tell me the same thing, that young people believe everything they see, read, and hear. So I have concluded that they don't have the kinds of critical thinking skills that you and I want them to have, and I don't think their teachers have the proper preparation to engage them in critical thinking about media messages. And so, and I, I would take the same refrain and say, neither do the parents. We have to reach them in ways that are critically important. And, and there are lots of ways to engage teachers, students, and parents in, in media literacy. Yeah, I, I want to comment about that, having a television in a child's bedroom. We've got some data looking at, I think it's over 60% of youth have a TV in their bedroom. And Michael Jacobson, who heads up the Center for Science and the Public Interest, said, it's analogous to having a marketer knock on your door and say, excuse me, uh, could I spend a little time with your child alone? And when I say a little time, sometimes two hours or more alone with your child selling product A, B, or C that is not in their child's best interest. Absolutely. And, Melinda, you and I both know that a majority of the commercials that young people are seeing today in 2009 are for junk food, are for food products that contribute to, you know, a host of, of, of health issues. And so we don't see on primetime television or Saturday morning television commercials for fruits and vegetables and real natural products. I'm not talking about the, the processed natural products that right. the, the big companies try to convince us are, are natural. And I even believe that word natural it could be used as a great jumping off point for any teacher who could walk into a grocery store, select and have his or her student select five products that have the word natural on them, and then look at the, the label 
for that and do a content analysis of, of the contents of the product. What I, makes that's it brilliant? Nat- you know what? What is the criteria for a product to be natural? Exactly. What is the criteria? And what they'll find is that there's not much behind that behind that tagline. Um, if you're just joining us, I am speaking with uh, Frank Baker, who is a media literacy educator. He travels all over the country helping parents, teachers, educators of all kinds reach children with critical thinking skills about the media messages that we receive. He also heads up the Media Literacy Clearinghouse, and he's also the author of two books, Political Campaigns and Political Advertising and Coming Distractions about how to question the movies. Frank, I've got to ask you a question uh, because I really want your opinion on this. It's something that really irks me, and that is, okay, so TV, we understand that that's certainly it falls under the umbrella term of what is media. And we know about the Internet and the computer and the, the cell phone screen. But what about curricula that enters our school system under the guise of, oh, do you need some free information on this? Here you go. Sure. Uh, great question. Increasingly, all kinds of companies want to get the eyeballs of the nation's uh, young people, and not just students, but also their teachers. And so we have companies creating curriculum that looks like it might be helpful and it might help uh, support standards. But one of the critical thinking questions that all of us need to ask about media messages, including curriculum, is who made it? Bottom line, who is the author? You know, I, I, one of the projects that I'm working on right now is all about information literacy. And if you, if you Google Martin Luther King... On Google, mm-hmm. the top search result that comes up is an Aryan Nation website. Now, most people don't know that, and neither do students. Students who use Google, for example, for their research, believe that Google has already done the vetting for them, that Google has decided that the number one search result in a search is the most reliable and the most credible. But if you look at that Martin Luther King website created by the Aryan Nation, you have to begin to really understand who put it together. It's very difficult to find who, who created the website. But that's the critical question, and that's the question all teachers should ask if curriculum comes in to your school. Who created it? What's their purpose? And what are, they, what are the techniques that they use in creating this curriculum? And what makes it palatable? And is there bias? Just um, understanding what is bias in curriculum material and what's propaganda. You know, so any teacher that gets material should always, you know, question it. And so these things come into schools all the time, much of it unsolicited, and it's designed to get teachers using it. I'm, I'm not saying that all of it's bad, and I'm not saying that any of it's necessarily bad, but states have uh, their own approved uh, textbooks and their own approved standards and these things that come in from the outside are not necessarily seen by those who are approving the curriculum. Right. I, I have a great example, actually, of a, of a curriculum that concerns me very much. It was put out by the Mid-America Crop Life Association, and there's a PowerPoint slide, and there are quote-unquote ambassadors that will actually go into the classroom free of charge and teach children why pesticides are necessary in agriculture, only they're not called pesticides, they're called crop protection. <laughs> and so, you know, using, applying, I, I, I bring that up because I want our listeners to understand 
that media literacy or critical thinking applies to whatever field happens to be your passion. For me, it's health, it's food, it's agriculture. Um, it could be somebody else from a, a political background decoding, as you bring up very astutely the Martin Luther King website, for example. We should, in our time remaining, talk about some of those key decoding, deconstructing questions. Shall we do that? Absolutely. Okay. And I would urge everyone, first of all, to go on to my website, the Media Literacy Clearinghouse. The URL, by the way, just happens to be my name, Frank W. Baker. So it's www.frankwbaker.com. Um, those of us in media literacy for years have been preaching, we have to get young people to be healthy skeptics. Right. Okay, not cynics, but healthy skeptics. And one of the ways to do that is to get them to ask questions. In, in my own work, I use some historical images and throw them up on the screen with no context and, and just say, you know, what do you want to know about this picture? And that's a great way to get started. But those of us in media literacy, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people, have developed a list of questions that we think all folks should consider when they come in contact with any media message. And, and, and briefly, I, I had mentioned some already. The first one is who created the message? If you, uh, I'm looking at my own website uh, right now while we're talking, and so on my own website I have listed my name, my email address, my snail mail address, and my phone number. If you can't, if you go to a website and you cannot find who the author of the web page is, that should throw up a red flag. So who created the message? Secondly, what's the purpose? What is the purpose? There's there's a new initiative growing called news literacy. And the news literacy folks pose this question. What neighborhood are you in when you're exposed to news? In other words, are you in the hard news neighborhood? Are you in the feature news neighborhood? Are you in the op-ed editorial neighborhood? Are you on the sports page? You know, are, are you in the classified? You need to know where you are first. So, and so what's the purpose? Uh, another question is, who's the audience? Mm-hmm. How do I know who this message is intended for, you know? And so identifying the target audience is another great way to engage young people. How do we know who is the audience for this particular media? You know, pick up Reader's Digest as an example, Reader's Digest magazine, and flip through it, and you will find mostly ads for prescription drugs. <laughs> now, who is the audience for the prescription drugs? That tells you who reads Reader's Digest. The other questions, and I think this is probably the most important question we could ask is, who or what is left out of a message? What are we not told? What do we not see? Who do we not hear from? And that's probably very important to understand. And I, I think a lot of our young people only know what they see on the screen, whether that's the TV screen, the computer screen, the video game screen, the motion picture screen. They never understand that process of how this product got to be made. And so a lot of what I do in my own work is kind of pull back the curtain. Here's how an ad is made. Uh, here's what the advertising agency is all about. Here's how the news is made, since I worked in television news. Here's how a film is made. And, and that's eye-opening not only to young people, but also to their, their teachers. And so a lot of media literacy is not only analyzing media messages, it's also giving our young people the opportunity to create those messages. Well, you know, Frank, whenever I give talks on media literacy in the food system, 
I often bring your name up, and I I describe just what you do about pulling the curtain back. I say, you know, Frank Baker says that media literacy is like the dog in the Wizard of Oz who pulls back the curtain to reveal the man behind the message. Absolutely. It's a great visual. It's a great way to describe what we're really doing here. You know, with our new administration, we are seeing some changes in policies, and I wonder... Are you optimistic with regard to the power that the FCC or the the Federal uh, Communications Commission will be, will they be empowered to make some controlling decisions? I think they will be as long as as we as citizens continue to be the watchdogs over who is on the FCC, what do they know about media and media policy, and opening the airwaves to those who don't have a voice. You know, you and I both know that one of the major concepts in media literacy is that media are about power and profit. And in the United States, there are six companies that own the majority of American media. Six companies. And so one of the ramifications of that is there are many, many voices that are left out. When I'm talking to young people, uh, as an example here, I might say, in primetime television... What television show can you name in 2009 that has a major character that's um, confined to a wheelchair? Right. And, and most of them cannot come up with a major character's name. Now, if you are physically impaired and you are confined to a wheelchair and you're a young person, you, a, lot, a lot of your self-worth, your self-esteem, your identity comes from media messages. What if you don't ever see yourself reflected in your media. And this is just one example. The other example, I might say, is of those six major media companies, how many of them are headed up by minorities or by women? And the answer is none. And so, you know, who is in charge of the media in this country? So I think um, the FCC will be as good as we as citizen watchdogs watch their decisions and think about what is best for us as uh, viewers, you know, I I'm continue to be concerned about the quality or lack thereof of commercial television. I think commercial, uh, the quality television has now moved away from the major networks to cable and pay cable. I'm concerned uh, that there are no documentaries anymore on the major networks in the same vein as my hero, Edward R. Murrow. You know, we could broadcast Harvest of Shame today and ask ourselves, what has changed in the 40, 50 years since Harvest of Shame first aired on CBS? I think it aired on Thanksgiving evening. You know, so here are, you know, uh, migrant workers picking our food and living in horrible conditions. You know, what's changed? And how media can be used to affect change? You know, I think that's, that's where I'm really optimistic about the future is uh, we have these new media tools like the cell phone and the flip camera, and more and more people are using them and uploading their stories to the web and really expressing their opinions. So the digital citizenship is empowering when you can tell a story and expose problems that need to be made aware of. With the cutbacks in the news business and newspapers dying and, and reporters being laid off, we have to be the watchdogs in our own communities. And I think that's a role many folks are already standing up and playing. 
I agree. You know, you remind me of a quote by Thomas Jefferson that eternal vigilance is the true cost of freedom. And it's very important that we that we not get too comfortable, that we not get a six pack and a, a a fun video, but that we that we sit there and we question the source of this information. What are the underlying messages? What are the effects on our citizens, especially our youth? I think that work with media literacy has a tremendous role to play in a healthy democracy. As I, I as I said earlier, I agree, and I think we ought to also celebrate those individuals and those groups and organizations and companies who are doing responsible kinds of things. So I think in a lot of ways what we hear in the news is always negative. But I also believe let's applaud those that are doing some really good things, that are you know, organizations that are promoting media literacy and organizations that are promoting the use of digital tools by at-risk young people or those who are, are, are powerless and voiceless in communities, I, I applaud those groups. I totally agree. Frank, I knew that our time together would evaporate, really, and I'd love to have you back because there's so many more issues with regard to news and agriculture, which, of course, is in a, it has a special place in my heart. I want to give you time to leave our listeners with you know, one or two final points. Well, first... Thanks again, Melinda, for having me. It's a, it's a real um, honor and pleasure to talk to you and to talk to your listeners about uh, media literacy. I think uh, if you've listened to the last half hour, you can tell that I come, uh, I come to media literacy from public education, and that's kind of my paradigm. I, I look at what we are supposed to be teaching young people in American schools today, and, and I try to provide teachers and parents and others uh, with resources. I, I created uh, the Media Literacy Clearinghouse website more than 10 years ago now because I saw the inadequacy of the textbooks, uh, what they weren't covering that they ought to be covering. And uh, like you, uh, I'm an advocate and a preacher uh, spreading the gospel of media literacy to audiences. And so if, if there's an educator out there who is saying, you know, we ought to uh, think about Frank Baker. Uh, I do professional development for schools and for districts and for conferences, so I'll, I'll put in a little commercial. Please go to my website and, and look at my background and read what other teachers have said about my workshops. I, I really enjoy engaging teachers in activities that are meaningful and are connected to standards and that will help our young people become uh, healthy skeptics uh, in a 21st century world. That's fantastic. And to learn more, please go to www.frankwbaker.com. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. You have been listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Frank Baker, media literacy educator. Frank, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you.